receive the offering. Um, hey, something to praise God for. Uh, kids go back to school this week, which is awesome. 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 So great. It's so... I just can't, like... Like it's like, No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I just appreciate that, you know, 10 months out of the year, I don't have to raise my kids. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I, I, I noticed that... Um, I got my, my red and khaki on this morning, and uh, I have a shift at Target after I'm done here. Um, <laughs> anybody ever made the mistake of going in Target with red and khaki on? <laughs> That's a great experience, isn't it? <laughs> Suddenly, you're an expert on the store. So, that's good. All right, well, Jamie's up here with me today, and uh, we started... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, last uh, week, we started um, our question and answer uh, thing that we do every couple times a year, and uh, we were only able to get through one question last week, and it was mostly me talking first service. Second service, you guys missed it. I let her talk a lot more, and uh, it was great. But um, no, anyway, so I told you we'd, we'd go ahead and extend it and deal with all the other questions. Uh, the reason we do this is because, uh, you know, like I said, I want to drive home the fact that at Living Hope, we're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of doubts. We're not afraid of skepticism in regards to Scripture or the church or just life in general, and, and, and so we're, we're okay tackling these questions head on, even kind of on the fly. Now, we've had these cards for a week now, but I promise you, we have not studied <laughs> and so, so it'll still be, sort of be on the fly. Now, we've taken a look at them and, and kind of divided them up, and, and uh, we'll, we'll go through them. But um, let's just dive in, because there's some really great questions that came in. And I think we're, gonna, we're actually going to be able to get to all the questions that were submitted. Now, if you, um, if you submitted a question and you didn't hear it, you don't hear it discussed today, it'll probably be being discussed next service, and both of those services will be posted on the podcast, so you can, you know, get caught up on all the questions that were, that were asked, okay? All right, so let's go, let's dive in. Uh, the first one is kind of, well, it's two cards, similar questions. So it says, how do we know all of the stories in the Bible are true, <clears throat> and then how much of the Old Testament should we follow? So, great questions, great questions. Um, so, you know, here's, here's the thing. It's a tricky question in terms of, you know, how do we know all the Bible is true? And this is going to sound like a PC uh, backpedaling thing to say, but it, it's just true. Um, it really depend, it, it depends on what you mean by true. It really does depend on what you mean by true. And I think when people ask, is something true, a lot of times they... We, we, we need to define what it is you mean by true. If you, so this is, what, this is what I believe. I believe all of God's word is true. All the Bible is true. It's true uh, for us. It's true for application to our lives. It all, it's all true. Is it history? That's a different question. That's a completely different question. Not all of the Bible strictly is history. So you have um, a we, what we would call a book, it's actually a library of books, uh, 66 books compiled together in what we call the Bible. And there's different forms of literature in this library. In the same way that if you went to our local library, you would find all kinds of different forms of literature there. You would find children's books, and you would find history, and you would find politics, and you would find sociology, and you would find poetry, and, and, and uh, you know, God knows what else you would find. I mean, all kinds of different books, right? Different genres of books. And the same thing is true of the Bible. We have, 
We have history, we have poetry, we have letters, we have gospels, which are a weird mix of spiritual truth and bi uh, biography. Um, we have apocryphal books like uh, the book of Revelation and portions of the book of Daniel, which that's a whole weird genre all its own, very symbolic, rich language. We have prophetic books, which are just that. In the Old Testament, you have these prophets that would write these, these books that tended to be kind of uh, a call back to Israel to kind of come out of their sinful ways and return to God, and, and so very prophetic in, the, in, their name, in their nature. And sometimes that prophecy is foretelling future, and sometimes it's just kind of good preaching. And so you, you know, th th there's that. So there's all this kind of different, different style of literature in there. And so before you can, like if you're looking for is everything, did everything in the Bible historically happen, then I would say the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no, because some of it is, is not meant to be read as literal history. Um, now, the tricky part in, when it comes to trying to understand the Bible is figuring out which sections fall into a more literal history and which sections are more um, allegorical or, or, or whatever the word you want to use there. And that, that sometimes can be tricky. And so uh, it, it requires a lot of uh, study. It requires you know, uh, a lot of you know, just kind of getting to know the word, getting to know history as well. History does inform our reading of Scripture. Now, there's a, there's a way of, uh, I think, if you've been in church for a long period of time, a lot of us have been taught this kind of view of Scripture, which is uh, kind of the Bible, like you could just burn every other book in the, in the world and just deal with, and ha just have the Bible and you would be just fine. And, and it's, this, it's this effort to kind of really elevate Scripture to a high place of authority in our lives. And I get the sentiment, it's just not an accurate sentiment. Because the Bible is not sufficient for every discipline in the world. The Bible is not the authority on issues of history necessarily. The Bible is not the authority on issues of science necessarily or, or pick, your, pick any other discipline. It's not the, it is the authority for our, pattern, our choices and our pattern of living and our, it is our, our, spiritu, our spirituality and our spiritual guide. But other disciplines can inform our reading of Scripture, and that's perfectly okay. Right, so this this has happened all throughout church history. Uh, you know, many hundred years years ago, when you know scientists were you know astronomers astronomers <laughs> astronomers were beginning to kind of observe the the universe and began to realize that the Earth was not the center of all of the universe. That the Earth, in fact, revolved around the Sun, and the Sun revolved around, you know, and a whole other, you know, group of, of celestial bodies, and you know that that we were not the center of the universe. There was Scripture. There uh, there were verses in the Bible that indicated the opposite of that. That indicated that that the Sun revolves around the Earth and all this kind of stuff. And the church lost their mind, lost their mind. The church suddenly became became like. Like, we got to get rid of these heretics. They're, you know, speaking this nonsense of the earth not being the center of the universe. And they absolutely lost their mind. They started, you know, burning heretics and all this kind of stuff. And now we look, now we're, we're several hundred years removed from that little bit of history. And it's really easy for us to kind of look back on that and go, well, that was just ridiculous. They were just, they just had their head in the sand and they weren't, you know, that's obviously observable unless you're one of those 
wackadoo NBA stars that believe we still have live on a flat earth and, you know, whatever. But most of us, 99.999% of us, believe that we do live on a round globe and, and, and that, you know, there are some observable things about the universe that, you know, so we can look at those scriptures in the Bible that talk about, you know, the sun revolving around the earth and, and go, well, one, either it's kind of... Uh, flowery, poetic language, or it is just primitive man and their primitive understanding of the universe. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. Again, God worked through men in a specific time of history. He didn't give them insight into black holes and the Big Bang and everything else, you know, that's going on in the universe. He didn't give them insight in that because that was not, God's intent was not to write a science book. God was writing a guide for our lives, a letter to us that we could use to draw closer to him, find a way of salvation to him, all that kind of stuff. It's just different disciplines, and it's okay. So I, I, I don't know how much you know, we need to go into in terms of, I mean, okay, I'll just use this as an example. There's a lot of evidence to, to, to believe that, um, and this is pretty much where I fall on this issue, and it's, complete, it's completely okay if you completely disagree with me, um, there's a lot of evidence to, to, to believe that, that it's possible that, say, around the first 12 uh, 11, or 11 chapters of, of Genesis, up until the telling of this, you know, when Abraham comes on the scene, uh, it's, it's, it's possible that those books aren't strict, in, I mean, those chapters aren't strict in literal history, that they are more uh, allegorical. I, I, I don't want to use the word legend or myth, mythology. I think that's not quite the right word. I like the word uh, theological narrative. They're the stories that God chose to give us to express certain theological truths. Are they literal history? My gut says no on that. But if you disagree with that, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. If you want to believe that's all literal history, that's fine. Um, it's, not, it's not going to be a deal breaker for us as a church. Um, you know, I could pull out other, you know, you know, there, there are, you know, you get into the prophetic books. Um, uh, there's some people who believe the, the book of Jonah uh, may not be a literal historical story, that maybe it was more a, a kind of an allegory of a spiritual truth that God was trying to teach us through this kind of fictional person named Jonah. We, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe it was literal history. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. To me, that's not the deal breaker. That's not the issue of of does that make the, the Bible reliable? We're dealing with, again, a, a book that's anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 years old in the 21st century, and we have to try to make sense of that in our times and, and apply it to our lives. So, so to me, the issue is not about how is this literal history or, or whatever. To me, the issue is regardless of what genre of literature it falls under, how do I apply it to my life? How do I apply it to my life? Because I think that's where the truth lies. That's where the actual truth lies. So now, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get you to you in just a second. So, no, 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 no. So, so hold it. So I just want to, I just want to, I'll, I'll. There's a second part in there, though, that that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I will, um, let me just, let me close my comments by saying this, that, um, when I was a younger man, uh, younger in my ministry, there were lots of facts that I learned, especially in, in you know, my, my 
college experiences and studies and things like that. Facts about how we got the Bible. Like I said, I know it may sound dumb to some of you, but when I got to college and learned that the Bible wasn't just sort of handed to us from God from the mountain, like that there was a human process in getting the Bible to us, that there were actually these councils, these church councils that took place where they came together to decide what we would consider Scripture and what wouldn't be considered Scripture. And, you know, again, very human processes involved in that. I believe God guided those human processes. I, I in faith, believe that. Um, but when I first learned that information, that was like, I mean, it was just, it was hard for me to grasp. And, and, and at first it, it, it made me go, wow, you know, why haven't I ever been taught this before? And I can remember working under different pastors early on in my ministry when, when they would gloss over what I think was really important factual historical information about the Bible and about how it came to us and all this kind of stuff. Or, and I would say, you know, and these were guys who went through a very similar education that I went through and knew the same information that I knew. And I go, why, why don't you tell them the whole story? And over and over by multiple pastors, the response I heard was, because the people couldn't handle it. Because they couldn't handle it. It would, it, would, it would be hard on their faith. And I just swore, right or wrong, I just swore from that point, if I ever get to the point to where I'm a lead pastor at a church, I won't deal with my congregation that way. I'll deal honestly, and we'll wrestle through the implications of certain truths together, and and, and I'm not going to try to sweep under the rug certain facts because I don't think there's anything to be swept under the rug. I really don't. I, I, think, I think actually that information emboldens my faith and makes my faith stronger, not, not weaker. And so I just, I just swore I was going to... Now, if, if when you hear certain bits of information about this, it, 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 it disturbs your faith in the Bible, it, it makes you question things, I want you to know, first of all, that's completely okay. That's okay. Um, Again, we're trying to make sense of, of, a, of a sacred text that's extremely old to us, and, and so there should be a little bit of wrestling that goes on with that text, I think. Um, so don't feel like you have to abandon all faith just because you heard something that didn't quite fit your paradigm for, for truth the way it was before, right? Um, just continue to wrestle and process it and ask questions, and, and we'll just, we're going to be a church, as long as I'm here, we're going to be a church that's going to deal honestly to the best of my ability with these topics. I'm not going to try to hide anything, and that's just the way I think is best. Um, there may be some people who disagree with that, and if, if, you're, if you're one of those people that you're like, I just prefer, you know, faith by ignorance is bliss, um, then there's plenty of churches out there where you can get ignorance is bliss. This is just not going to be one of them, um, as long as I'm pastor. And so um, that's all I really have to say about that. Um, what do you want to add to it? Sorry. Was this part, part of the question still? Um, yeah, 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 I, and I, I answered that, yeah. Okay, I yeah. didn't hear that part. Okay. I think my eyes glazed over. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> now you know how I feel. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> That's not right. Uh, that, just, first of all, I'm one of the people whose faith is shaken by a lot of what he said, and I've gone through a lot of doubt and struggles based on what he said, not because it is or isn't true, or I don't know, just because I was raised for the last, you know, well, for 30 years or whatever, all of my life being taught something very different than what he said. So it's been very new for me to soak that all in. So I wanted, I didn't even want to touch this question. Um, but part of that question at the end there was the Old Testament, how much do we apply it to our lives? 
and I don't know if you, I, don't, I didn't hear you touch on that, but just the idea that, um, you know, the Old Testament, it was basically law that was given to us or given to people, God's people to follow before Christ came. And once he came and died on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice to cover a multitude of sins. And we were no longer expected to follow all these little tiny things that the Old Testament um, calls out for us to, to do. Um, but that being said, I used to always think, then why do we read it? <laughs> that I really don't like to read the Old Testament. It's just not easy for me. I prefer the New Testament because it's just kind of an easier read, feels more applicable. Um, but I've come to understand that the Old Testament just is so rich in the history of what God's people went through. And we can look back on it and see the mistakes that they made typically over and over and over, and God's um, continuous grace and mercy that was extended to them over and over and over. And to me, that just gives me this hope that um, he, he loves us, and it's a great example for us to look back at and say, okay, we may be a, every, you know, every 10 years, someone's like, this is the worst decade ever, this is the decade full of crazy sinful people or whatever, um, but we can look back way back in time, with people who actually experienced the miracles of God and still rebelled against him as if it was all crazy, and he loved them anyway, and he forgave them anyway, and they were always brought back to him. And to me, that is definitely encouraging and gives me hope. So, yeah. Yeah. so while I don't have to follow every little letter of the law that's in it, it's still important to us. Yeah, I think that's a common mistake in reading the Old Testament, that we we tend to think that the Old Testament is there to give us a standard of living or a law for living. And I think the exact opposite, or maybe not the exact opposite, but sort of opposite is true, that I think the purpose of the Old Testament is to show us in a very long format that we are completely incapable of living up to that standard, and that is why we need Jesus. The Old Testament is the prequel to Jesus. It, is the, it lays the groundwork for why we need a Messiah in the first place. So there are a lot of places in the Old Testament that just feel very hopeless and very uh, like despairing of the human condition and, and God's wrath and things like that. And we want to try to, again, it's our need to kind of wrap everything up in a tiny little bow and, and make a neat little package of it. And, and I think some of the Old Testament, you, just can't, you simply can't do it. The whole purpose was not to give you a happy ending. The whole purpose was to point you to the man who would become the happy ending, right? And so it's it's like it's like the it's like the Star Wars prequels. You 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 stomach them, they're not that great, but you stomach them to get to the get to the main ones, right? And so anyway, so it's it's kind of that. But um, uh, one more quick quick detail here. Uh, last week I said some things that that um, that just was disturbing to some of you in terms of when the question came up about, it was the only question we dealt with last week, but about kind of the issue of homosexuality and things like that. And one of the things I said was, was that, um, that in three or four spots in Scripture, three or four verses in all of Scripture, that the Bible does call homosexuality out as a sin. It absolutely does. I cannot change that. I can't just start ripping pages out of the Bible. It's there, okay? And, and so... Then the question that we have to deal with is how do we, and this maybe, I'm bringing this up because it's, I think it's a good example of the application I'm talking about. How do we apply that teaching to our life, especially if it's a teaching that 
that for us in 21st century America, it might be a little offensive to our sensibilities. Like, then we start, have to start wrestling with that, that question and go, okay, we ask some questions. Is this a universal for all time truth? Or is it rooted in that culture? That's a fair question. It's a question, it's a question worth, worth discussing. Um, is this, um, I mean, you know, is, is, is there history or language here uh, you know, because we're, we're, we're using a translation of Hebrew and Greek, right? So is there a language issue here that might inform our understanding of that teaching? Is there an overarching principle that transcends the culture that we can apply? So we ask all these questions to try to apply it to our lives. And I made the statement that, that while God's word is fixed, again, I can't change the words that are there, how we apply scripture to our lives over time does absolutely change. And we use some examples of that, of how we apply certain passages of Scripture today in ways that it didn't used to be applied, you know, it, used to, it was applied differently centuries ago. Um, and, and this is the part that disturbs some of you, as I said, you know, um, will our thinking as a church ever change on this topic? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe, right? And some of you want to, bah, 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 where, what church am I going to? And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so the, I just want you to know that that... I stand by what I said in that God's word does affirm in the both Old and New Testaments that that is sinful behavior. What I think of it doesn't really matter. I have to deal with what God's word says. And so then how do we apply that? And we will continue. I think it's only fair for us to wrestle with that. Why is it fair for us to wrestle with that? Because people's lives uh, and emotions and everything else are at stake, and, and we don't, we don't want to just plow over people with Scripture. We want to engage people with Scripture in a meaningful way. But what we do know from Scripture is that we are called to a dangerous and reckless and, and soul-stretching kind of love for all people. And so I, I just want to call you to that principle of love and go, regardless of how you or we or whoever falls on the issue of sinfulness, just love. Just love. Love until it hurts. Just love. Now, I think those kind of theological shifts, even though we're in the middle of a theological shift, and a lot of denominations are wrestling with this right now, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's causing division in a lot of churches and in a lot of denominations. It's in the news all the time. I think these shifts, uh, and, and some of you will disagree with me, I think these shifts, if they're to take place, should take place extremely slowly so that we're not just shifting to every wind of culture. So will our church's uh, stance change on this over the next 25 years? If I'm honest with you, I doubt it. I doubt it because I don't see evidence in Scripture that would allow us to change that currently in the way I read it. And I would say I would, I, I'm going to presume on behalf of the elders that I think they they kind of agree with me on that. Um, will it change in the next 50 or 100 years? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but you do need to know that as the leaders of your church, we don't we do not take those issues lightly. We do not we do not um, just change at a moment's notice of what we we say. We believe about the Bible or sin or anything else for that matter. That those issues will be prayed through, studied through, advised through, all kinds of things. We're not going to be quick changers in 
in when it comes to the way we read Scripture. So I hope that alleviates any fears that were coming up from, from our Christian crowd here, right? So I told you last week when we dealt with that question, I was going to tick off everybody, right? So for the Christians in the room, I know that, that again, I'm just dealing honestly with you. I know for some of you that's going to make you a little uncomfortable to think, why would we ever reconsider? Well, because that's what you do as time goes on. We, we're constantly reconsidering things. It doesn't mean we're changing, but we're willing to have the conversation of, should we? And I think that's healthy. I think that's a healthy process. Uh, for those of you who maybe not, you know, close members of the church, and you're like, well, you know, people's lives are at stake. You need to change quickly on this if you're going to change. We're, we're not going to do that either. It's just, it's not, it doesn't promote unity in the church. And for me, the most important thing in our church is unity. Unity. If we lose our unity, we lose it all. We do. So I'll leave that at that. All right. Um, you have a question. Go ahead. Okay. How does LHC view tithing? Um, give what's on your heart or 10%. I love being generous, but I feel like I want to split the 10% between tithes directly to LHC and then offerings to others. So I think that that can be answered a couple of different ways, but in Malachi um, 3.10, it says giving is, sorry, I'm sorry, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And very specifically, he's speaking of a tithe or 10% of what a person's income is. Um, but the, what I notice in the scripture is that he says um, that there may be food in my house and that he is speaking very directly of God's house and his house of worship. And I do think that the Bible instructs us to give 10% of our um, income to the church. The church just very practically needs to know kind of what it can expect to depend on week to week, month to month, year to year, in order to continue to operate. If people gave kind of how they felt like it here and there, it would um, it'd be difficult to budget and plan you know, much of anything. Um, but that being said, I also believe that the Bible teaches that giving is something you do from your heart, and that um, as with many of these issues we'll talk about today, I think Jesus really looks at your heart more than he does the specific thing that you do, and it could probably border a little on legalism if we get to counting pennies and condemning people for not giving what we think they should give. Um, the bottom line is God says, test me on this and see if I won't pour out blessings for you. There's a, a scripture that I have loved forever that says, give and it will be given to you in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Just the idea that God wants so very, very much to bless us. And the money that he gives to us, whatever it is that we earn or have in this world, we, we owe to him. It's really, truly his, be it our children or our things or our families or our actual money. And so the more that we take that and hold it with a loose hand and say, okay, God, this is for you. I trust that you'll use it wisely. He's going to bless us for having that that attitude. Yeah. Um, and I do know a lot of people who give. I think it's important to know our church gives 10% of what we receive. Of course, a lot of it goes to paying bills and 
buying supplies for kids' church and whatnot, but we also give 10% of what we receive out to other organizations and missions things. Um, Team Dixon, I love Team Dixon. It's a fabulous organization here in our own community that helps special needs children. And there's another organization, the Dixon Teen Center. It's, it's a mission field of its own. We're reaching out to sometimes troubled teens and sometimes just other teens, you know. And the money that you give, a portion of that from our church goes to those organizations as well as missionaries. So you can know that when you're giving your 10%, you are giving to other really good causes too. Yeah, good point. Good point. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to that. I thought that was a great answer. Um, so, I, you know, again, we're not going to be legalistic about it. We're not the church that checks your giving records and sends you a bill. We're not going to do that. Um, you know, I, I don't even really know who gives what. Um, it's just, I just trust God that God's going to provide through you and your generosity for what he's calling us to do. Um, and so, so that's how that works. So I was just, like Jamie said, it's a, and the Bible calls us out. One of my favorite passages on the issue is in uh, Hebrews 11, where it talks about that um, by faith, you're talking about uh, Cain and Abel. And he says, by faith, a, uh, Cain, or excuse me, Abel gave the better offering. And, and, and so, you know, go back, that's going back to the early chapters of Genesis, um, talking about the story of Cain and Abel and how one gave an offering to God that was not pleasing to God, and one gave an offering to God that was pleasing to God. And, and I was always like, why was God just, you know, arbitrarily not pleased with that guy's offering? And then this, this passage in Hebrews 11 explains it. It was a faith issue. It wasn't the giving issue. It was the faith issue. And so, so like Paul teaches, you know, I, I, I request the gift not because I need the gift. I request the gift for the furtherance of your own faith. I want to see you grow in your faith. And so that's, that's the way we approach it here at Living Hope. We know that if God can get a hold of our purse strings, then chances are he's also got a hold of our heart. And because our hearts are tied pretty close to our checkbook. Um, and so, anyway, I, I would just say, make it a faith issue. Get, submit to God in all things, and that's what it should be about, all right? All right, so this question, are we ever going to seriously consider having communion every Sunday? So I know who this is from, I'm not going to say who it's from. Um, <coughs> are we ever going to consider, so this is, a, this is an issue of tradition, right? It's an issue of tradition, and one of the things I love about Living Hope is that we are kind of a melting pot of all Christian traditions. Uh, there, you know, there's very few of you, we, we are technically a member of uh, the evangelical, evangelical Free Church of America, although we don't emphasize that a lot around here. We're not a big denominational, you know, rah-rah church. That's just not who we are. Uh, but actually, very few of us in this room actually grew up in the EFCA. Most of us grew up in different traditions. And so some of you come in and you're like, hey, why don't we take communion every Sunday? And some of you come in and you're like, why don't we say... Uh, the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, and some of you are, you know, you know, whatever, and, you know, why don't we have a bowl of holy water in the back of the room? And, and you know, you come from all these different traditions, and, and, and so for some of us, those traditions are very important and very meaningful to you, and not demeaning those traditions in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing wrong with us having communion every Sunday. In fact, if, if I'm honest with you, when I read Scripture in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, when it talks about the way the early church worshiped, even though it doesn't say it explicitly, I, I kind of think that the, the inference is that they probably were, when they gathered for worship, uh, taking communion together, uh, probably every time. Um, is that a prescription for us to do it the same way? No, not necessarily. There's lots of things they were doing that we don't do today. So um, for us, we do it once a month, usually first Sunday of the month. 
and, um, and that's just kind of the way we do it. We've talked about moving to every Sunday. There would be nothing wrong if we did that. Um, one of the tricky parts to our situation is having two services. We're kind of on a fixed time schedule. Um, and every time we do communion, service goes a little bit longer. And that may not be a big deal to you, but I promise you it's a big deal to the children's church workers. <laughs> and so, and so, so, so I feel like uh, the once a month thing works pretty well for us. You know, it's, again, it's not something we're close to, but it works pretty well for us. And, and um, um, so there. And then uh, there's also another piece that we design our service. This is actually going to deal with a different question we're going to handle. But we design our services very, services very intentionally to um, to speak to a an audience that's far from God. That's not me slamming you guys saying you're all far from God. That we know every single week we have a, a decent number of people that show up that are far from God. They're checking out Christianity. They're checking out the church. They're here. They're scared. They're whatever. And uh, and and so. We try to design our service in such a way that it would be um, attractive to that crowd as well as to us that are insiders. And so uh, by not celebrating communion every single week, um, it gives people maybe a, a handful of weeks every month, month to, to not have to necessarily uh, feel like the odd man out by not taking community uh, communion, and uh, and so anyway, lots of reasons a better part of that conversation. It's not a right or wrong issue; it's just a tradition issue, and that's it. All right, Gary. Yeah, I I just I researched that topic myself quite a bit, and I didn't realize I never realized it's kind of a controversial issue that um, there are schools of thought that say when the Bible is talking about um, breaking bread together whenever you get together, break bread, that it's talking about having a meal and they weren't really talking about communion. And some say, oh no, they were talking about communion or it's different in different passages. Um, but what I do know to be true is that um, it does say that when we, whenever we do this to remember him. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is, again, important in your heart. When you take communion, then we should be thinking about that sacrifice that, that Christ made for us and that we're taking time out to... Absolutely. To remember him. Um, so this question says, how can one make church more non-believer friendly? Jeff just hit on that a little bit there. And another part that kind of goes, oh no, no separate, separate. separate. Okay, how can we make church not more non-believer friendly? This is something that has actually changed the trajectory of churches over the last 20 years in a pretty big way. Years ago, churches basically got together, sang a few hymns, had a sermon. Things were sometimes, in my opinion, dry and boring and whatever um, because they were just there for um, the Christians who came to meet and worship. And if anybody was going to come to know God, then they better come to church and sit and worship the way that we do. And that was just expected. But then a movement came about probably more in the 80s, I don't yeah. know, um, of trying to make church what they call seeker-sensitive or sometimes sensitive to those who are just completely non-believing. And every little thing that a church does was put under a microscope. What kind of music do we sing? Will that attract people or will it uh, make people uncomfortable? What kind of um, 
traditions are we going to continue to do? If we, we, we've wrestled with this as a church ourselves. Whenever we get up and say, hey, shake everybody's hand, somebody's out there going, oh my gosh, I hate this part. This is really weird. I don't like it. And others are out there shaking everybody's hand in the church for 10 minutes and we can't get them to stop, you know? Um, but how do we make people feel comfortable when they're coming into the church? Maybe they've never been in church in their lives and they're completely, um, unex- they don't know what to expect or Anyway, so we really look through a fine-tooth comb at all of these things. And Living Hope, uh, the elders um, and Jeff do sit down together, and they do talk about these things. And the staff with Rob, they consider what should we or could we do in worship to make people feel comfortable, but at the same time still honor God with what we do and not water down Scripture and the purpose of why we gather together. Um, But one thing I do know is that First and foremost, we are the church. We, the people, are the church. And we need to be the church wherever we go. And if we want to reach people who don't believe in Christ, then we probably need to be doing it more outside the walls of this church. Because we cannot just expect to have this fabulous, you know, light show and everybody's going to come and accept Jesus because that was the coolest show I've ever seen. You know, that's not going to happen. But if we are in the community serving people, loving people, and showing people what the love of Jesus is really about, then that's going to hopefully draw them to us and give us an opportunity to invite them, you know, kind of into our circle. And just the reminder that um, church is not a country club. This is not a um, member-only cliquish group where we do what we want. This isn't, it doesn't exist for me. It doesn't exist for the kind of music I like. It doesn't exist for kids' church to be run the way I think is perfect for my children. Sometimes we as believers need to be willing to sacrifice what we think should be done our way and be willing to look at doing it someone else's way. And I am speaking straight to myself because I'm as much of a critic of things as as anyone else, but I have to remember that, that this church does not exist to please me or to please you. This church exists, our, I don't know if you call it our theme, our focus, our whatever, glory to God and hope to people. You know, that we will give glory to God and that we will give people in our community hope. And If that means that the kind of music we sing changes or the kind of preaching that I sit through is a little different than what I grew up with or that I never get to sing a hymn again even though I have great memories of hymns or whatever it is, we we will do as a church what is best. And it changes through time. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, 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 it is is something that we're... and, And by the way, I love this question and I love people who ask this question because it tells me that you have a heart for the lost, that you have a heart for people who are far from God. And, and people who, and so I'm always welcoming of, of new ideas. If you've got a new idea, because, you know, Rob and I talk about this all the time. I thought we believe that there are ways of doing church that nobody's thought of yet. And, and, if, you, and if, if you have an idea for how, you know, some little something or some big something that we could do as a church that would, that would be more appealing to the lost. I want to touch on something that you said, talking about making the, you know, people outside the church more comfortable, a more comfortable atmosphere. That's not that we water down people, um, you know, skeptics and not skeptics, but um, critical people, um, which none of you are, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but we'll automatically go to, oh, we're just watering down the truth and, you know, what, you know whatever, just making, making this easy believism and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is just a bunch of hogwash. 
we can make this a comfortable environment for people who are afraid to step foot in church and still let the Bible make them uncomfortable as it makes all of us uncomfortable, right? And so, so it's, it's actually, I think, more in the littler, littler things. Is somebody going to come in and find a clean bathroom instead of one that's absolutely destroyed? Is somebody going to drop off their kids and feel like they're dropping them off in a safe place versus one that's like, oh, I hope I get them back alive? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's things like that. Is somebody going to come in and sit through a service and be pleasantly surprised that, it, like Jamie said, it wasn't the dry thing they thought it was going to be. We actually laughed and we had a good time. It seemed like people were glad I was there. And, you know, it, in fact, it looked kind of when I walked up to the door and they were, you know, it looked like those greeters were actually expecting me to show up and, you know, things like that. Th- those are the things I think that, that really make a difference in whether or not our church is approachable to people who are far from God. I I think, too, that for those of us who are believers, to remember this is something else we've done from the beginning of Time at Living Hope, um, to be as authentic as we can be about who we are. Because I think my first weekend here, we were, Jeff and I did a marriage retreat on like a Saturday to talk about marriages, and I revealed that in my history, I had had an affair with a married man back when I was in college, and many, many other issues that you don't even want to hear it would make you uncomfortable today. And I remember someone coming up and saying, I can't believe you shared that, like you're a pastor's wife, and you told me that you, um, I wasn't a pastor's wife then, this was before we were married, but that being said, um, if we can be honest about who we are and the mistakes we've made and are making even today, then someone who doesn't know Christ can say, all right, well, you're willing to look at yourself and let Christ analyze you and change you, so maybe I should also let Jesus do that to me. If we come in and act like we've got it all figured out and we never have problems, then nobody can relate to that, and who's going to want to be a part of that? Yeah. All right. Next. Okay, so the next question, what tool or verse should we arm ourselves with, um, our nine-year-olds with, to defend their faith on a minor level. Um, Last week, a relative attacked their faith when they were alone with the kids. As parents, we've addressed the issue with everybody involved. Um, But what can we do to arm the kids with, so that if it ever happens again with someone else? So I love that question. I think that's a really good question. Anyone can come in um, under fire for their faith. And I think children maybe are more susceptible because you've got other kids that do what kids do and, um, and adults who believe maybe that someone's raising their kids wrong. Oh, you're teaching them all this hogwash or you're brainwashing them. Um, so our job as parents is clearly defined in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And just this idea of as we raise our children, our job is to incorporate scripture in everything we do, not just when something goes wrong, um, and not just when things are perfect, but to constantly be talking about you see, that's how God, he worked that out in our lives. Isn't that great how he provided for us? Whatever it may be, and to, to speak scripture into them and to guide them with that truth so that they can become more comfortable and carry it in their hearts and know it when the time comes to defend their faith. Um, 
And I also think, you know, having your kids in church every Sunday, making sure that they're back in kids' church when they're comfortable so that they can be taught at their level the things that they need to learn, the foundations for their faith is very important. Um, then there's the scripture that is for all of us um, as putting on the armor of God every day. And it says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil of the day, having done all that you can to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel and peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts from the evil one, all these people that are critics, right? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. Um, and it just goes on to talk about how we can, this is in Ephesians, how we can build ourselves up against those attacks from other people. And the truth is that the attacks aren't coming from the people. It's a, it's a spiritual attack when something like that happens. And um, I just think that if we can arm our children with scripture, then um, that's kind of all that we can do. You know, let them know that it's okay to believe something different from someone else and to be strong in what you believe, even if someone else doesn't believe that. Yeah, I think the other thing you can do is just to prepare them for the, the, the fact that not everybody's going to believe the way they believe. And, and some people will have questions, and some people may call out your beliefs as ridiculous or, or whatever. And I think just to mentally prepare them for that so that they are not shocked by it when it happens and, and to let them know, the, you know, that doesn't mean we hate that person. That doesn't make that person our enemy necessarily. Um, you know, they're not necessarily bad. They're just, they're just wrong, which I think is a real a value we need to get back to in this country that not all people who disagree with us are bad. Some people are just wrong, and that's okay. We've all been wrong too, right? And so um, anyway, I, I think just to mentally prepare them for that and let them know that, it, you know, yeah, this might happen, and, and um, that's okay. That's okay. You know, you, you stick with God and stick with what you believe. You be your own person, not necessarily shaped by every, you know, outside source that comes at you. All right. Um, so last question. What does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? So baptism is uh, something that we do, that we have our baptismal tank over here. Uh, different churches do it differently. Some people, we, we immerse in water, dunk in water, um, uh, because actually the word, the Greek word baptizo actually means to immerse. That's what that word means. But other, church, other traditions and other churches, you know, sometimes they'll sprinkle or pour or something like that, and it's not, it's not wrong. Uh, per se. It's just, that's the tradition that we follow. Uh, but baptism dates back to the early days of Judaism, um, kind of pre-Christian. And, and baptism was around before there was Christianity. And the way it looked like in Judaism was that if somebody outside of the Jewish nation wanted to convert to Judaism, they would have to go through this process called baptism. And it was basically this really kind, almost kind of insulting way for the Jews to go, you're so filthy and so dirty because you're not one of us, you literally have to get in water and wash off, right? And so then what happens is in the opening chapters of the Gospels, we see John the Baptist calling the entire nation of Israel to come and be baptized. And that was basically his way of going, guess what? You're all dirty. It's not just them. It's all of you. All of you. All of you need to be washed clean, right? So Jesus then it becomes baptized, and then it becomes this tradition that's passed forward 
uh, by Christ through to his followers and on and on and on through the centuries that when somebody comes to faith in Christ, we do this thing called baptism. Now, there's nothing magical about the water. We don't bless it or anything. It's just tap water. That's all it is. Or if you're going to Puda Creek, it's river water, right? And so um, there's nothing magical about it. It's just a symbol of the decision that you've made to submit your life to Christ and follow him. And, and all throughout Scripture, we see it's kind of the first act of obedience of, of new Christians. You know, they, they place their faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, they become, and they get baptized. And so we kind of treat it like the launching of your faith. You know, that I'm kind of publicly launching my faith and uh, aligning myself with all of you so you know I'm on the same team as you. Uh, it, there's some symbolism in baptism, uh, of symbolism of the washing away of our sins. There's symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, so there's some rich symbolism there as well. But, but the biggest issue is that it's, it is kind of the public launching of your faith. And uh, that's why we do it. Now, that said, we actually have baptisms next week. We have baptisms next week. So if you have... If you're a person that you're like, you know what, I've, I've been coming here and checking things out, and I really do think I want to you know, be a committed follower of Jesus Christ, then we'd love uh, to talk to you this week about being baptized and uh, just fill it out on a connection card with your name and a contact uh, number or email, and we'll get in touch with you. Just indicate that you want to be baptized. We'll get in touch with you and talk to you about it this week and, uh, and get that done next week. It's a great thing. We love baptizing people around here. It's a celebration. And so we'd be happy to do that, all right? God is good, and, and, uh, and again, uh, he's not afraid of our questions, so we're not going to be afraid of your questions either. Uh, let's just kind of wrestle through this mess together and get, you know, do the best we can. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word today. I thank you so much for Jamie joining me up here and, and just sharing her wisdom with us. And, and uh, God, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that when we ask you questions, you don't zap us with lightning or tell us to get out of your face and instead you seem through the evidence that we have in scripture uh, it seems to be that you're okay with questions you're okay even with doubt um, as long as we uh, can doubt in a way that is uh, also faithful to you um, and so God I, I openly confess there are times I doubt there are times I feel weak in my faith and um, but but I in faith step out and believe that um, that one day you're going to erase all those doubts. One day you're going to make everything clear. And, and that a lot of my doubts and a lot of my questions can be answered right here and right now just through the testimony of the scriptures that you've given us. And we thank you for that. And so thank you for this group of believers who loves you, who wants to see other people come to know a beautiful relationship with you and uh, help us in that mission. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.